hi, I'm Kaylin, and I will be reading Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my God. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom, I, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the, in the night, also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy ones see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Thanks. Thank you, Kaylin. For those of you who I haven't met, my name is Nikki, and I'm part of the leadership team here at Common Ground Bloberg. And it's really wonderful to be with you this morning and to be able to be speaking to you from this uh, very incredible psalm. Um, someone came up to me earlier and said this is their favorite psalm, and I'm sure there are a few people who uh, think the same. So it's a privilege to be speaking out of the psalm. And um, I want to start this morning by speaking about how we see things and how important it is, our view of things. I don't know if you've ever been to the Seapoint Promenade sure most of us have, and uh, unless you are standing in the right place, you could be walking kind of toward in the direction of Camps Bay and with the waterfront behind you, and you're walking on the promenade and you see a whole few uh, chunks of um, rusted metal. But what's happening? A whole lot of people are taking photos of these chunks of rusted metal, and if you don't know what they are, you're kind of going, what are those people looking at? And if you're anything like me, I just run past them, and it only takes me once I've turned around on my run, and now I'm running in the opposite direction. Maybe we can show the chunks of the rusted metal. You can go through, tick, 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 there they are. You're like, what are these people looking at? Then you turn around on your run, and you come, and you say, that's what they're looking at. See, where you're standing is so important. What we're looking at is so important. Recently, um, Anna, our youngest child, had school photo day. For the second time in a row, it was the school photo day where I had forgotten it was photo day. It's a story for another day. Rewind uh, a year ago to photo day at her school 2021. She arrives again in an outfit that was not appropriate for photo day. Thank goodness the teacher is a family friend who got an outfit from her child for Anna to wear. This is Anna on school photo day 2021. Most of you ha have seen her. She is a little bit shy, a little bit reserved when she's feeling um, uncertain. She's looking at a stranger who she doesn't know. Fast forward to this year, photo day 2022, which I did forget again. <laughs> Anna is just owning the props. She was feeling so at home and comfortable. I even messaged her teacher. I said, were you guys in the room? Like, what was happening? She said, yes, all three teachers were in the room pulling funny faces. Roger and I, when we first saw this, we said, what is she looking at, and why did she feel suddenly so comfortable, who, sometimes quite shy, I never would have thought she would put on those sunglasses. What made her feel like that? What was she looking at? Now we know what you're seeing elicits a kind of response in you, and it is so important. What we're looking at makes all the difference of our responses. There's another picture of um, us, uh, our beautiful beach. Maybe we can go to the next one. I mean, 
the promenade with its rusty rhino is great, but I mean, hey. Bloberg is the place to be. This is taken at the lower parking lot um, of Big Bay, and we love to park there and run or walk towards Meltbos. And it's just the most beautiful place to be. If you don't enjoy the beach and you live anywhere in this vicinity, can I just implore you, go drive to the seaside, just soak in the beauty of where we live. But again, that's besides the point. But I love to run on this beach and walk on this beach. And there's been a few times where I'm running. And again, I mean, people with their photos and their, their cameras, they're all kind of pointing out that I can see they're trying to stop me, but I'm like, I need to just get these steps in and I'm only gonna turn when I hit what I know I'm turning. And I don't stop and I don't look, but I think, I wonder what they're looking at. But I don't stop and I don't look at it. And my behavior, because I'm not seeing what they're seeing, my behavior doesn't change. I keep on running. But when I do turn around, again, I'm coming this way and I finally see, oh, there's a whale. We don't get them that often in, here in our bay. But when you see a whale, the response that it elicits from you is to stop, is to look out at the bay, is to take a photo, is to be late for the meeting that you thought you were going to go to at 9 o'clock and to take it in. What we're seeing elicits a kind of response in us. And that's kind of what we're doing in this series of Psalms, upward invitations to sacred revelation. I think so often we look at the scriptures um, and, and we try and apply them to our lives and we maybe look for a few imperatives and we look for things that we can do. And although we're gonna look at the Psalmist, and in this case it's David, and we're gonna say, you know, what was he thinking? How can we apply this to our lives? How can we change? Primarily what we're doing is we're asking the question, what was he seeing? If you think of a group of people pointing out to sea, or a group of people who have stopped their run and they're taking photos of some hunks of metal, or little Anna feeling comfortable enough to wear a pair of sunglasses at her school photo, and here's David writing this most incredible piece of literature, Psalm 16. What was he seeing that would elicit this kind of response? What God was David seeing that he would write these things? And that's primarily the question that we're going to be asking today. And that's um, what we are asking in this, this series as we, the next few weeks are diving into some Psalms. But uh, let's, let's dive in. Very interestingly, you know, um, Kaylin beautifully read to us from the ESV, whether you've got the ESV or the NIV or whatever other translation you've got. Um, this Psalm, it has a title. Uh, it's Psalm 16, but it's got, you can go back to the next slide, it's called a Miktam of David. And uh, a miktam, loosely translated, well, most scholars think it means a golden psalm, a golden psalm. So this is a golden psalm of David. It sounds very nice, and that's been quite widely accepted. But there are some scholars who suggest that the word miktam is um, loosely related, or it sounds like the word which means to cover, quite specifically, to cover the lips. This was a psalm which was meant to be whispered in secret, there are some psalms that, are, that were written for the congregation to say out loud, just like this morning we sang those beautiful songs and hearing each other's voices kind of encourage us as we sing together. This psalm is designed and written as one with which to cover the lips. Maybe in a time of trial or in a time of um, despair that you would kind of whisper this, this psalm, you cover your lips with it. And I absolutely love that picture. And so kind of remember that as we're going through these beautiful words. And um, as we read this passage, and maybe we can put up the, the passage as we go through this, but there is, there is a deep-centeredness and security. I don't know if you picked that up as Kaylin read those words, but there's like a groundedness to David where he knows, he finds it this deep security in God, that God is God, and he can be secure in light of that. Because of who God is, he finds this deep security, this deep groundedness, 
And so he asked the question, who was he looking at that he would, that, that would elicit this kind of response from him? And we're going to start by looking at the end, verse 11, mainly because it's my favorite part of the psalm, but also just because um, I think it paints a beautiful picture for us to look back on. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. We live in a confused generation. My um, parents always tell me every generation has thought that about themselves, so maybe we're not the first ones, but we live in a confused generation. People are saying, tell me what this whole thing is about. Make some sense of this mess that is the world and my life that I live in. Here, David says, you make known to me the path of life. You bring clarity and direction and guidance. We live in a generation, I think we will all um, agree to this, that is obsessed with joy. Find your inner happiness, find your inner peace, express yourself. I think sometimes we don't even realize what kind of pressure is on younger people today to experience joy. Do you know, I've had some younger people telling me that the pressure that's on them to leave school and go and travel and, and, and explore the world it's immense. It's like you've got to live this best life and wring it dry for all it's worth. And if you're not planning on doing some incredible overseas trip or some incredible gap year or, or some amazing experience of joy, of finding, tapping into deep joy, well, then you're kind of missing out. And it's actually a pressure. But here David is saying, in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy, not just some joy or a kind of little, a little taste of joy, but there is fullness of joy. And David says, at your right hand are pleasures evermore. In reading these words, I, I really want to say clearly that this is the God of the Bible. This is the God that we believe in, a God who brings clarity, direction, understanding, beauty, delight, joy, guidance, pleasure, he is deeply involved and deeply interested. There is nothing apathetic or anemic or disengaged or uninterested about the God of the Bible. And we just need to kind of let those words soak into us. You make known to me the path of life and your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures evermore. Such beautiful words. I mentioned my youngest child, Anna, but um, we have three daughters, for those of you who don't know, and they very often, they're quite spoiled. They're the oldest, they're the first grandchildren on my side and the, the youngest on Roger's side. So like both hold quite a special place in both families and get given toys and clothes that, you know, they quite, they're very lucky children, but they seem to forget this quite often, like children do. And they'll say things like, what should I wear today, mom? And I'll say, wear that new jersey that you got. Mom, what new jersey? I don't have anything new. I don't have a new jersey, and then I'll go, I'll get it. I'll say, this new jersey. That, I've had that for like two months. I've already worn it, it's already been washed. Like, yeah, 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 it's still new. Two months is still a new jersey. And, and things lose their shine to my children. And, and if I'm honest, things lose their shine to me but quicker than they would like. We, we are living in a very consumeristic, materialistic culture where things lose their shine. And what I do to my children is I make sure now, like, remember the jersey. Remember you got this yesterday? It's still new. Isn't it so nice? Granny really spoils you. Send her a voice note. Say thank you. Oh, you got this toy. Do you want to play with this toy? Isn't it nice? Remember, still new, not old yet. And 
And I think if we're not careful, because we're kind of, that's the culture that we're swimming in, that, that things lose their shine, what we can do is that our view of God can lose its shine if we're not careful. And listen very carefully to how I chose my words there, because I chose them. Our view of God. God does not lose his shine, but my view of God can lose its shine. It can grow a little bit dim. I cannot see him clearly, but he doesn't lose his shine. Maybe you got invited here by someone else today and um, you're kind of new to the whole thing of faith and Jesus and you're working this out and you're saying, actually, if I'm totally honest, it's not that God is losing his shine, it's just that he was never really that shiny in the first place to me. No matter where you are, maybe that's true of you or possibly you've been following God for a number of years and you're just saying, actually, my view of God has lost its shine. It's my deep prayer that today that we would be reminded of this God who makes known to us the path of life and his presence is fullness of joy and who's at his right hand are pleasures evermore. Let's make sure that our view of God doesn't lose its shine. And we're going to see how David makes sure that that doesn't happen to him. Remember what Rod said last week was that A.W. Tozer quote, which says, what comes to your mind and I want you to think about this now. What comes to your mind when you think about God? What's in your mind? What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Who are you seeing? How is your view of God? Whether you would describe yourself as a Christ follower or not. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. So we're going to look at uh, verse 1 now. And um, Read it for us. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. And I wonder if you would indulge me in a little moment of nerdiness for a moment. I love words and I love learning about words and what they mean and where they come from. But you'll notice there, there are three references to God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, you are my, capital L, small O-R-D. And um, what's quite amazing here is that this is giving us some insight into how David sees God. The first one, uh, preserve me, O God, that means Elohim. That's just like the God, creator, king, control, most powerful God. In you I take refuge. I say to the capital L-O-R-D, all caps, Lord, that means Yahweh. That is the Hebrew name for God. So he's addressing God by this very precious name that um, some of you might know that actually when, when they would write that word down, that they would leave the vowels out because it was so precious to say, you are my Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which means Adonai. And the translation of Adonai is master. So in fact, David here, we just seeing God and Lord but what David is actually saying is he's saying, God, you are my master. You are my Adonai. So that's the first thing. The first way that David is seeing God is he's actually seeing him as his master. He's saying, you are the author of life. You are in control. You, um, you ask me anything and I will, I will do it for you. You're, you, you, are, you are my master. Brother Lawrence, who I'll quote a little bit later, he was um, a monk, and he said, we should be obsessed with finding out what pleases God and give ourselves to that. Being obsessed with what, what pleases God, that speaks about something of, of a master. 
And I think sometimes we can have a negative um, con- uh, kind of connotation to the word master because we think of an earthly master. And how would someone not, who has ultimate power and can ultimately tell someone what to do, how would they not use that just to exploit the, the, the person who is in submission to them? But what's different about God is that he is altogether good, which we're going to look at in a little bit. He is master, but he is also the safest place. Master, but also the safest place. We, our, our kids love to play that game, that trust game, you know, when you like cross your arms like this and you fall back and you just hope like to goodness that your sibling will catch you. They're really good at that. And the older sisters, they can sometimes be quite mastery to their younger sister and vice versa sometimes, but they, they can sometimes be master, but they're not always the safest place. They play this game and sweet little Anna, she just falls backwards and someone always catches her. But it has happened twice now that the older child who will not be named actually thinks the game is over and has left. The master is now no longer the safe place of refuge. Poor Anna, it ends very badly because the master is not the safe place. Not so with God. In one place, in, in, at all at the same time, he is master, but he's also refuge and he is the one who preserves and he is the safest place. We read on to verse four, which says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So seeing God as master, which is the primary way that that David is seeing him, he's saying, God, you are my master, and so I pledge my allegiance to you, and I will serve no other gods, small g gods. I will not run after them, and I've seen that those that do, their sorrows multiply. You are the one true God, and I will not run after any other god. David sees God as the only true God. And I want us to see this this kind of comparison where he says, "Um, I have no good apart from you versus running after other gods will multiply sorrows. And even before we kind of unpack that second line, I think it rings true with us, isn't it? Running after other things other than God that multiplies sorrows. If you've been coming for any kind of time, any length of time to common ground, you would have probably heard us talking about this concept of idolatry, this, this, this idea that we can follow after other things, small g gods, we like to call them. And maybe that sounds, I know that sounds like a bit of a funny term and sounds like something that's maybe carved out of stone or wood. It's not really that, but it's giving our best to something that other than God. And maybe it's approval, maybe it's power, maybe it's influence, maybe it's comfort or security or um, emotional health health, whatever it might be, they often are good things, but when we're running after those things, they, they may even um, deliver for some time, but ultimately they let us down. And when we run after those things, rather than running after the one true God, our sorrows multiply. But David sees a God who is good. Running after him brings goodness. He says, apart from you, I have no good thing. He does see a God who is just, a God who does hand us over to our desires now and again. We want to run after those things, those small G gods. He's not moving us like chess boards, chess pieces on a chess board, but our sorrows will multiply. But David sees a God who is good. He says, you are worth running after, and apart from you, I have no good thing. And that's primarily who David is seeing. David sees God as the source and sum of all goodness. Verse two continues, I have no good apart from you. Basically, the language that he is using is, in comparison to God, even good things hardly seem good. 
Brother Lawrence, who I spoke about earlier, he says it like this, sufferings will be sweet and pleasant to us while we are with him, and the greatest pleasures will be, without him, a cruel punishment to us. I think sometimes, whether you have been coming to church for a long time, or whether this is like your first time back after 25 years, those words, God is good, are very familiar to you. Am I right? Like we're all like, we have heard that. That, that. that phrase can sometimes be a trite response to someone who's in suffering. It can sometimes be tagged on after a hashtag blessed Instagram post. But that is just not where those words belong. And they, in a sense, have been drained of their power. Often we, we kind of encourage us as a church to say, you know, when you're on your own, to, to uh, meditate on God's word, to prayerfully reflect and to take moments of silence and solitude and let God speak to you in the quietness of your heart. We're going to do something a little bit different today. It's going to be very short and it's not solitude because we're all together, but it is going to be silence, but maybe not 100% because there are a few babies in the room. Don't worry if your child makes a noise right now. But we are going to actually ask God, God, would you give us back the the truth in those words and restore them of their power that they deserve when we hear them. I want to hear those words, God is good. God, I have no good apart from you. And I want to hear them as they are designed to be heard, not like stale bread that has kind of lost its nutrition and can't really be eaten anymore. So if you're comfortable, I'm not going to ask anyone to do anything other than to just close your eyes. We're going to be quiet for 30 seconds and in whatever where you feel comfortable under your breath, won't you pray and say, God, restore those words to me, and I'll pray for us at the end. God, by faith, we say that you are good. Sometimes that word has uh, been drained of its power and we're aware of the limitations even of our, the, of our language as well as our understanding and interpretation of it. But I pray that this morning that you would restore to us the power that those words deserve, that God, you are good and we cling to that. You are the source and sum of all goodness. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And I encourage you, as you go from yeah, into, the, into this week, and as we, as we kind of look to the, the, the week ahead, won't you think on those words? Ask God. Pray. God, show me that you are good. But we move on to, um, to see that God's goodness means that when David looks at God, he sees a God who sovereignly cares for and provides for his people. In verse 5, it says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. We bought uh, Josie, our middle daughter, a pair of gold vans from a factory shop. And uh, so they, were, they are her prize possession. They are glittery. They are gold. They are getting small for her now. And we said, it's time to hand them down to your sister. The joy of having three girls. We're like, you're done with the clothes. We pass them on to the next one. Pass them down. She tells us, no, she's not actually going to pass them down to Anna because um, these shoes are actually her children's inheritance. <laughs> so, so we had to have a conversation that, you know, yes, vans are good quality shoes. And yes, they, we've told you they will last and they'll last. They're not going to last that long. 
but she's adamant about it. We're like, okay, let Anna wear them, and then you can keep them for your children's inheritance. But it did get me thinking. I don't know what kind of inheritance my precious granddaughters, oh, I might, not, I might have grandsons. I only think of girls. But um, my grandchildren will be left one day. I have no idea, and I'm out of control of that. But I pray that like David, I can say, they can say, surely I have a beautiful inheritance, not because of anything that we left them or the gold vans or anything else that might come their way, but because of their inheritance in the gospel, their hope that is found in Jesus. Surely I have a beautiful inheritance. And interestingly, David, who penned these words, we know from elsewhere in scripture that he is the youngest son of Jesse. He would have little to no expectation of earthly inheritance. Possibly some, and possibly he came into wealth. There was, you know, leadership and other influence in his life. But at this t time, whether or not he was expecting anything to come his way, surely I have a beautiful inheritance is pointing upwards. You are my inheritance, God, and you, you beautifully and sovereignly care for and provide for your people. He also says that, that wonderful line um, about his, the, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. And uh, in, in the, the book of Numbers, there was, you know, people, the Israelites were apportioned land, but the priests didn't get land. They were, they kind of said this line, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Actually, God is enough for me. And so in this moment, David is identifying, yes, maybe there's massive influence in his life. Yes, maybe he's going to have incredible tasks and adventures with God. Yes, maybe one day he's going to be king. But he primarily identifies as priest in this moment, which I think is, is quite profound. He claims that, that line that was given to the priests, and he claims it for himself. And then this other beautiful next line, which says, the lines for me, so many lines, the lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I was telling someone uh, this week that I was preaching on the sermon, um, on the psalm, and they said, oh, you must tell the story of how, um, where that line comes from. The lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. You um, uh, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You hold my lot. And they told me the story that they had um, also once preached on this uh, psalm and done some research that when um, the Israelites came into the promised land and the plots were kind of handed out, how did they decide how everyone was going to get the different plots of land? They would, the land had been divided up, however you divide land into plots, and they would make a little marking on each plot and then get a whole bag of stones and make a correlating marking on each stone. And there was a young boy who would hold the bag of stones and all the leaders from the different uh, families would come together and um, each in turn, the, 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 the head of the family would take out a little stone from this bag and would see a marking um, on the stone and that would correlate to the plot that they must now go and build their life on. But this line is what they would say. They would take the stone out of the bag. Okay, I've got the circle with a cross through it. And they would say out loud, the lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. They had not yet seen their plot. They might have the worst plot next to the noisiest neighbors. It might be on the highest hill that nothing can grow. They don't know where their little circle with the cross through. But they say that line, the lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance, not knowing what their plot was. And I think when I listen to myself and when I listen to us and when I listen to culture, we look at where the lines have fallen for us and we, we grumble. 
But what if we, with gratitude, look at the plot we've got? This house I live in, this family I've been given, these health issues that I'm facing, these relational strains that I have, this body that I live through life in. It's prophetic because it might not be totally true, but you're saying, actually, with God, it can be true that the lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. And it's not a name it and claim it thing, like say it and then you will get the best plot. No, you're still going to go out. You're going to maybe walk into your bad plot. The, the little picture is not going to change. But it's this amazing sense of seeing God as a good God who is, he is master. He is author of our lives, but he also sovereignly cares for and loves us and has our best at heart. We see his goodness, his closeness, and his steadiness. In verse eight, it says, I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. We're gonna talk about that, that beautiful line, um, I've set the Lord always before me, but I love that, that line of, um, he, because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. There's such a nearness and a closeness and a steadiness about that. I know what it's like to have someone at your right hand. I have three little people who are often at my right hand. That's close. Being at your right hand is not like over there where that poster is and we're like, oh yeah, hey, we're together. You're here, side by each, you're like right together. And, and that is that closeness that, that David is talking about. Recently, we um, friends came and stayed in our home, and we were away. We were staying in KZN. They came down from Joburg. They stayed in our home. And um, our alarm, somehow we never did it. The company came to give us a new battery, put an app on our phone. So when we undo the alarm, we hand press a button on our phone. And, okay, the alarm is deactivated. Sounds very fancy, it's not fancy. But the alarm's deactivated, you can go inside the house. And I'm messaging her, have a lovely holiday. Um, this is how you open the, the door. Don't, you know, don't forget to take the bin out on Wednesday. I'm like messaging her and it's like, there's something of a connection. I let her in, but there was a distance. And that kind of grieved me. They're very special people to us. And I was like, what a bummer that you're coming and we're not there. But anyway, you know, enjoy the house. And I think that's sometimes how we, we interpret that God is. He's there, he let us in, deactivated the alarm on our phone. Yeah, okay, access granted. This is how you use the washing machine. This is how you go through life, sending us WhatsApp messages from afar. But this is not what we see here. We see a God who is very close and who's very near. He's at my right hand. And because of that, David says, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And earlier this week, Raj and I were talking about this actually in our staff meeting. And, um, and Raj so beautifully said, you know, we live in a generation that is so easily shaken. And we're just talking about how, you know, things like anxiety and depression are just higher than ever before. Even just like the ability to offend someone and be offended, or just that the uncertainty of life is rough, really. But here we see David saying, um, because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. There are two ways to interpret that I will not be shaken. Either you're saying, okay, when I'm shaken, okay, the ground is shaky, it's shaking all around us. When I'm shaken, I run to God and he pats me on the back and tells me everything is gonna be fine. That's, a, that's an incomplete and possibly untrue representation of what this line is. This line is actually, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I stand secure. This kind of conjures up for me kind of almost like a, a, a warlike, a soldier-like image of um, a soldier who feels he's called to battle. He knows he needs to go in, but it's scary. But he looks to his right hand, and there is the, 
what would you call commander-in-chief or your, your superior who's at your right hand. And so you won't be shaken. You're still going to go for it. He's at your right hand. I will not be shaken. You see, the God that David was seeing is a God of so much courage and power and closeness and interest and goodness that he brings deep security and groundedness to David, and, and that's available for us as well today. The other thing that David is seeing in God is he's seeing God as a God of delight, God of delight. This is the best part of, of the psalm, the kind of second half. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. He's a God of delight, and this elicits worship in David. There's so much in the psalm. I feel like we could probably stay here all day and talk about it. So if I don't mention something that you're like, that was such an interesting verse. Let's talk afterwards. We can't talk everything from up here. We, I just love how he, you know, it, he won't... He, he won't let his Holy One see decay. You won't let your Holy One see corruption. That's a, a pointer to Jesus. Yes, he won't let, this, there's so much, Jesus was the Holy One who did not see corruption, who did not see decay because of his resurrection. But at the same time as well, there is this steadiness and this security, this groundedness that we see in the Psalm. There is so much life in God, so much security in him that it's almost as though David is saying, even the grave cannot snatch this from me because of uh, what security I found I found in God. God is a God of delight, and uh, I'm going to tell you exactly how I find that in the psalm, but there's, there's also this beautiful sense that God is a God of delight. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there, is ple there are pleasures evermore. God is a God of delight whether I am in his presence or not. I think sometimes we so often just think of the, the impact that God will have on me in my life, but God in and of himself, he is a God of joy and a God of delight and a God of pleasure, a God of deep happiness. And so that's why David can say, in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your, your right hand are pleasures evermore. And David, he, see, he knows that God is a God of delight because that delight spills over onto David and out of David onto the people around him. Verse three says, as for the saints of the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. This is a sermon about the attributes of God and who David is seeing as he looks at God. But you know that I will always find a way to talk about community and friendships and, and kind of re incredible relationships. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent one in whom is all my delight. Let me say that David had many reasons to not delight in the saints of the land. There were many things that he could be deeply offended about. But yet, what kind of God is David seeing? Talk about a strange response. Talk about people standing on the beach pointing out to the sea, and you're not sure what they're looking at, or looking at what you think is hunks of rusted metal, and is, you're kind of like, what is that? How can David say that? As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. I d he delights in people who have seriously let him down. They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. He has got to be looking at a God of delight, a God who looks at people and delights in people that are broken and sinful and lacking. And as he looks at a God who delights in people, then David is able to delight 
in people. There's not a lot of room for, okay, yes, I like Jesus, but the people of God, not so much. Suddenly, when we read a verse like that, it actually doesn't fit all that well. And that's sometimes because we need to be seeing God in a more true way, in a more fresh way. God is a God who is passionate about people. He is passionate about you. He loves you. He delights over you. We read in scripture, it said, he delights over you with singing. He loves you. And we need to let that love that God has for people, yes, come to us, but also um, overflow out of us. He delights over us. And this whole um, uh, series, I suppose, as I said, is, is making sure that our view of God is not losing its shine. Our view of God cannot, we can't afford in this day and age, I suppose in any day and age, for our view of God to lose its shine. But how do we keep our view of God right and true and high? And I think there's a bit of a key to that. David says to us, he says in the Psalm, I have set the Lord always before me. Set the Lord always before me. Remember last week, Rod said, you know, sometimes we can think we're living our lives with the backdrop of the gospel and of Jesus behind us and we kind of go about our daily life. But in fact, this is saying, I have set the Lord always before me. I had a friend who in the early days of having babies and not being able to connect with God and your life is just crazy, you're trying to just survive, she would literally stick post-it notes of one Bible verse just like on her mirror, on her fridge, on her cupboard. I'm not saying go and stick post-it notes around, but it's quite a lovely mental image to have. Setting the Lord always before me, reminding me who is God. And, and that's what we do for each other, but it's also our mandate to set the Lord always before us, to make sure that our view of God is, is not growing um, dim or losing its shine, but that we are seeing him, amongst other things, as our master, as the one who is the source and sum of all goodness, and who beautifully is, is, a, God who is a God of delight, and who delights in his people, and so we can delight in the people of God as well. I'm maybe going to ask Raj to join me at the front, and we're just going to take some time to pray. Maybe the band can join us as well. Thanks, Nix. What a beautiful job, and um, I, I, I'm not going to keep us long. Maybe we can stand, and um, just my one reflection as I've been listening is um, the God that Nix has reminded us of, that David reminds us of, is the God who will be there tomorrow morning. Mm. And uh, who is it that you see on a Monday morning is probably more important about Mm. you than the God you see on a Sunday morning. Mm. (laughs) Because that's the God that will shape your day and your interactions and the way that you view your life and your world and um, whether you delight in people or whether you uh, want to avoid or destroy people. And um, just wondered this morning if we could maybe close our eyes and, um, and let's ask the Holy Spirit. There's an amazing story that a blind man interacts with Jesus and Jesus heals him, but he heals him in part. And he says, I can see in part, help me. And Jesus uh, heals him fully. And it's almost a process of un, uh, sort of unblinding his eyes, helping him to see and That's probably the best way to describe our lives. We don't see Jesus perfectly. We don't see God perfectly the first time. We get progressively able to see how good and big He is. Progressively able to see that He's a master, but He's also good. That He's delightful, 
but he's also holy and untouchable. God, today we thank you. We ask that the shine, the beauty of what it means to be in your presence, to, to know you would never become something we get complacent about, that we get comfortable with, but that day in and day out, we are increasingly awed, increasingly amazed by the God that we are close to. As we worship you, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says that's the miracle of the gospel, that you, God, have taken the veil off and we are able to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, a humble servant who was master over everything, over nature, over creation, and yet you chose willingly to submit yourself to sinful people who put you on a cross. And it's that amazing paradox of your humility and your power that leave us going, wow. Mm. Only you can be a true master. Mm. Only you can be a sovereign Lord that we can truly trust. Mm. So as we sing, I ask Holy Spirit, open our eyes freshly to see more of your beauty, mm. to let the shine of your glory rub off on us, that tomorrow morning as we wake up, we are just able to see just that much more clearly the God whose world we live in, the God who is master over us, the God who teaches us to love well. We pray this in your name.